0: Ich bin Radio Meerstein
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of Parks Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Fallon in Island Park, New Jersey. Island Park, conservative double-carrion, Anshayim. Joining me and my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Schechter Day School, Long Island. Rabbi Jeremy Kaminovsky, Anche Chesed in New York City. It's great to see you guys. Big shout out, big shout out to my daughter, Elie She has her 21st birthday, the 21st. Whoa. Which is amazing. 21st. You remember her. We remember her. And she is a Bible scholar. Goes, Whoa,
0: I remember when she was like, like not even in Kohabim.
2: Exactly. Oh, I, remember, <laughs> I have a great image of her and a couple of my former students when they were in Nitsanim that summer.
1: Well, we have a lot of stories, but we have another family story going on in this Parsha. And I would say it's amazing. It's an amazing family story this is we're going to call it the reconciliation of joseph and his brothers but there's so much going under the surface uh, that i'm actually wondering if this is a reconciliation or if there's just so much unstated that's left unstated and there's tension there and uh i'm going to turn to you barry first to, to to tell me if this is disturbing or if there's something sentimental here and and we're going to pick it up from there because we know the story the story is that joseph has been has basically framed benjamin up until now he's framed him with the stealing of the goblet and they're going to take benjamin into custody and judah is basically petitioning joseph to release him and to replace benjamin with himself he's appealing to Joseph's sensibilities repeating over and over and over and over again, my father, my father, my father, and pushing, I think, all the buttons. And Joseph can't handle that anymore. But, uh, and it's, it reaches its an emotional uh, peak. But Barry, take us into the difficulty of this moment.
2: So I, I, I go between disturbing and unsettling. And it's kind of ironic in a partial where the children of Jacob, of Israel, will settle in Egypt that the aftertaste of the partialese is one of unsettling rather than settling. So I don't really think there's a lot of resolution. I think the resolution is mostly superficial. And I think that there are various clues along the way that suggest that. So after Judah mentions his father many more times than is necessary in his appeal to Yosef, Joseph reveals himself, and his first comment is, Oda vichai, is my father still alive? Which seems a little bit out of place, as if he couldn't quite process what Judah had been telling him. And I wonder if it is suggestive of some guilt on Joseph's part, because as I think it was Ramban who mentioned, one of the great curiosities is that Joseph makes no attempt to reach out to his father for the 22 years that he is in Egypt. And we often think of this as a story where Joseph is betrayed, but there seems to be an element of betrayal within Joseph himself.
1: I, I, I want to um, come in and, 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 and kind of take your side here, I think, which is the sense that that there is, there is something unsettling here, that uh, it's not only with regard to, Joseph and, and what he says here, which could have been, you know, the, a moment of being startled and re, trying to reassure himself. But it's also a sense that the family equilibrium is, is in need of restructuring and that Joseph sees his role as reconstituting the family. And, um, and, and so the family, the family is really on the verge of, of, of a breakdown. It's falling apart. Uh, and the famine has exacerbated that that internal tension. There are internal fissures in the family, and you know we could we could do, a, of course, a, a little sermonette on the fact that you know families with internal fissures, uh, those fissures are exacerbated in, in times of global stress, which obviously we're in right now, and, and everyone is experiencing on some level. But it's it's not. I'm saying it's not a sentimental story of like, you know, the end of the Joseph and his Technicolor drinker where all the the brothers, they, they hug each other. It's, it's, I think there's something under the line there. Jeremy, do you have a a take on this that is counter to ours? Do you want to come and?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, I I basically do. I mean, obviously what you're saying is not, is is not wrong by any means. Um, And, to add one point to the uh, to the to the side that I'm not really going to take, but to add one point to to augment the position that you guys are taking, you know, 17 years down the road, Jacob is going to die, and the brothers come to Yosef and say, uh, apparently, fictionally, falsely, you know, our father said, please don't kill your brothers after I'm gone, uh, which means that after 17 years of living in Egypt and a previous 13 years uh, of of Joseph being being alone before the brothers arrived, means the 30 years hence, the brothers are still anxious that Joseph is going to take 30 years since they threw him in the pit and sold him in slavery. The brothers are still anxious that he's going to take vengeance on them. So, you know, it's not hard to say that there's a lot of water under the bridge and a lot of, and a lot of hostility and anxiety still, and, and maybe their reconciliation is somewhat superficial. But I am going to go the other way and say that it is somewhat more sentimental, that Yosef is—I uh, is, I can't imagine uh, another answer that—Yosef is the most emotional character in the Torah. He is, he is full of feeling— He is full of tears and he has been throughout this entire brother episode when he has at times been cruel to his brothers. he always says that he, he held himself back. He held himself back. He held himself apart. He didn't let them know who he was. He acted like a stranger to them. Um, He was, he was playing this manipulative, you know, ruler in disguise. And then then he can't hold back anymore. And he says, "Ani Yosef, Oda Bichai? I actually am not Mr. Tzafnat Paneach, guy in the Egyptian costume. I'm Yosef. I take this identity back. Is my father still alive? Yeah, okay. In a, in a sense, it's strange. And as Barry said, you wanted, if, if I could write the story to be nice, as soon as Yosef ascended to power in Egypt, I would have had him send a delegation up to Canaan and bring him, and bring his father back. But I think that the mode is like." I have now returned to my true self, and am I going, he, he's, he's a child again, am I going to see dad again, oh my goodness, and it's an expression of, of wonder and joy, and furthermore, I just want to say one more thing which relates to the Haftarah, um, you know, the Haftarah is, is Ezekiel, the Haftarah comes actually right on the conclusion of the Valley of the Dry Bones, Ezekiel chapter 37. He's had this image of the people of Israel completely, totally, thoroughly devastated, and they're a valley full of dry bones, and yet they come back to life. And the thing that comes right after that is he says, you shall take these two sticks or these two blocks of wood, on one of them you write Judah, on one of them you write Joseph or Ephraim, and you touch them together so they become one again and not two you, Ephraim, Yosef, refers to the northern kingdom, and Judah the southern kingdom. And so he, Ezekiel has this kind of act of almost like uh, you know ritual magic to take the two the two symbolic blocks and and fuse them. I think uh, it's so incredibly persuasive that I almost think that that you, chapter forty five here in Vaigash is told with the same thing in mind. Judah, the southern tribes, draw near to Joseph, the northern tribes, and they. They cause each other to express their feelings, and Judah does something so generous. Uh, so I do think that Judah. I got a few more pieces of evidence, but I'll leave it at that. Okay. I think that Judah but, is doing something in great, great generosity.
1: So as usual, I'm, a, I'm you know I'm a little darker. Barry, Barry is you know here <laughs> with me this time, but we're, so, we're going to go with the lights. I, the mean, I mean, have
2: one thing, Jeremy. So what you say is quite forceful. And what occurs to me is that when Joseph says Oda Bichai, there's an element of psychological transference, because when he's been in Egypt, Pharaoh has become his father. He is the second in command. He is like the favored son of Pharaoh. And now that his brothers have come to him and he has this chance, as you say, Jeremy, for reconciliation, he recognizes that his actual father, Jacob, is still alive and that he is Jacob's son. And that's the son of Pharaoh.
1: Okay, so let me. I just want to make a, a, a theatrical comment here, which uh, I, I've only been discovered on this uh, go through, which is when when this moment happens, and Joseph says, Hotsiu kol ishme get everybody out of here." That is such a theatrical moment. It's such a great moment. It's like clear the stage of everybody, and and. Who's in the room? The only people in the room are Joseph and his brothers. And then it's at that point that he cries, that Egypt is outside. And that, you know, is a beautiful uh, theatrical element also because we're there inside and there's something outside. There's an intimate moment going on inside. uh, And Pharaoh's household hears. But... There's one other element here. I'll make my case one other element, which is it's we're there with him. This is an intimate moment of disclosure to the family. And the the literary technique here, which is dramatic irony, that we know something that the characters don't know. And by clearing the stage, this becomes a family story. It's an intimate story. And the intimacy is not only between Joseph and his brothers it's between joseph and us we the readers i mean at this point in the story i'm in i don't know about you guys i I'm, I'm, I'm betting that you guys are in too we're all there we this is our family this is our life this is this is our history and we're there watching it together okay jeremy go ahead
0: i just was going to say in, in okay everything you said is correct because we do get verse 3 there in that chapter which is the we the, Let's just imagine this now, just totally cinematically. Right. They're in the room. Judah gives the impassioned speech, and the camera is is right there, and the camera maybe even was close up on Yehuda as he gives this impassioned speech. Then the camera pans back, and we see that there's a room full of people. There's there's you know eleven brothers and Yosef and whoever else is in the retinue. And Joseph says, everybody out. And the camera goes out too, uh, because then it's, et kolob veyishma'u mitzrayim veyishma'u be'paro. then we, we, the camera is now on the outside of the house. It hears the roar in tears, and it, it sees everybody in Egypt looking around. It sees Pharaoh's house looking around. We're on the other side. But then with verse 3, we get inside again. Absolutely. Then, Joseph, then Joseph says the words. So I think cinematically you've got a lot of the, the, the cinematic or, or visual storytelling. Uh, I, do, I think it does arrive where <laughs> so, you said. it has got that moment of us being on the camera being on outside the house.
2: Well, th- you so, know, since th- we're talking about literary motifs, it's also suggestive of the Oha Moed where God's voice comes out, stretches out beyond the confines of the, and in a sense, Joseph seems to be a stand-in
1: for God here. It's it's also revelation, disclosure, it's concealment, reveal. Uh, it's 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 what makes the Torah great. It's it's this is this the Torah storytelling at its greatest moment. I, I mean it doesn't really get better than this uh, moment in the, in the entire Torah. That's what we would you know, propose. Well, it's the to-
2: longest single stretch of literary
1: unity. Right, and it's the most the most cathartic moment. Uh, it's the climax of the whole story where, where now, okay, so all the masks are off. We know who we are. And, and so this is the question that I'm really plagued with, which is we know who we are, but some of the past is still right in front of us. And will they be able to overcome that and you've already touched on it a little bit and we could go a little deeper into it because there is this whole sense that the brothers don't want joseph to run their lives and joseph very much wants to run their lives i mean is that am i on to something here with this story is there is there a is there a, a tension between the in the political structure of the family in terms of who has the power is there well, tell
0: tell us why you, you feel that. Tell us a little bit more about why it is that the that the brothers and Yosef have different, you know, feelings of who's in charge, and Yosef has to has so, to be in charge.
1: All right, so I'll go into it. I think I think the, the family's in a very very difficult state when it comes down to Egypt. It's a global pan, global pandemic. It's a global it's a global famine. Okay, and all the fissures of the family are are now really pushed to their breaking point which is true in all families during terrible, terrible times of stress. Um, and and the, what I'm decoding from the narrative is that the brothers are acting as individuals and as factions, and that there is a need to, re, to, to save the family. Joseph wants to bring them all down to save them physically, to sustain them. That's absolutely the, the goal here. But there is also a larger plan, which is to bring them down, because that's part of the the covenantal vision. And while the text doesn't say this, there is the intimation that he knows this, that Jacob certainly knows this. But Jacob is yeah, in a sure. weak, he's he's in a weakened state. He's old. He's he's been battered by life, and and I think that what's going on here is a need to. The, the desire to really reset the family. And so
2: I, I think there's a political dimension that we also have to address, because I think the tragedy of Sefer Brashid is that the people end up in exile and Jacob alone of the patriarchs dies in exile. Yeah. And I think that is something that weighs heavily on him. And when we think of the brothers in Canaan, we could say, you know, in many ways, their behavior was despicable, But what they did is they sent their problem away, as it were, Joseph. But now in Parshad Vayigash, Joseph wins because now everyone comes to him. And what has happened then to the dream of living in one's own land and worshiping God in one's own way? They cannot do it in Egypt. And what happens, I think, in part, is the tension is between Assimilation, which is represented very well by Yosef with his Egyptian wife, his Egyptian name, working for the king of Egypt, and the brothers who ultimately are still shepherds. They're still natives
1: of Canaan. Book so so maybe I'm asking a larger question, which is: can the family reconstitute itself? With the family covenant as its central mission, the question the, is whether it can be done in Egypt. Whether it can be done in Egypt on a foreign land, and and obviously it happens there. But but um, you know they they so so maybe the question I is actually, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah the question well, is well. necessary. That was you know I think
0: that the you know can can the family be reconstituted in Egypt? Uh, I'm going to take a stab and say maybe it can only happen in Egypt yeah. that um that Canaan has been continually you know the, the place of the dream for and imagined destiny and always a, a problematic place um you know and the experience of exile is uh is actually forging togetherness in its own in its own crazy way. They fought like hell when they were in Canaan together, and now they're in Egypt, and they might be able in the sufferings of diaspora to to have attain a different kind of unity. Um, you know, it's hard not to it's hard not to think about uh, contemporary visions of the Jewish people, the, uh, the Zionist, like at, at its at its core. Uh, believed, especially in the early days, and some people still today believe in Schlilatha Golad, negating the diaspora. Said, no, no, you really have to leave wherever you are. And the only place for a Jewish future is in the land of Israel. None of us in our lives have made that choice. Um,
1: no, but it was it's so interesting we you know to superimpose on this narrative the whole diaspora Israel narrative. And and certain true elements emerge, which is that modern Zionism was was formed it, not in not in the land of israel but it was formed outside of israel i mean why, I, 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 go ahead I think,
2: I think the reason why that is is because what we have here is ultimately the tension between the family and the nation nation building i think as jeremy observed can only happen outside the land but in other words the family can live in the land but in order to become a people that i think in the Torah's terms has to happen outside the land so they leave as a family, they're going to come back as a nation. That's interesting.
0: And right. I think if we look, if we looked closely, we might see, is there some, I mean, this will be homiletical. I'm not say, suggesting that the Bible has made this choice, but is there like some difference between talking about Beit Yaakov and thinking of that as a family and B'nai Yisrael and thinking about that as a nation? Uh, Barry, you, you said something that I thought was very, very sharp about them being shepherds. When they first arrived, in Egypt, Joseph seems to be, not knowing the geography, the real geography, um, I'm left to sort of speculate based on the storytelling, but it seems to me like Joseph, hearing that they're coming down, stops them on the outskirts of town in this place called Goshen and says, you guys stay here. Um, And when Pharaoh comes and he asks you what your job is, tell him he's your shepherds, that's going to be good because the Egyptians Shemikne.
1: just hate
0: shepherds. No, hate tell, them, shepherds.
1: tell them you are on Shein you are people of... Cow the people, West you're South. cowboys. Okay, you're,
0: right. you're cowboys. And they're not going to want you in the city. They're going to want you out here in your own place. And it's going to go well for you and it's going to go well for them. And I think that exactly as you said, um, Joseph is, is an utterly assimilated character to the point where they don't even recognize him as a Canaanite, and he pretends not to speak Hebrew, and is uh, speaking through an interpreter, and he says, you know, his, the name's Menasha, name's his child Menasha, which means God made me forget all that terrible place. My name is Tzafnat Paneah. Thank you very much. And uh, But for his brothers, he doesn't want that path. For his father, he wants a distinct identity, which he, you know, Ani Yosef, I'm not not Paneh, I'm Yosef, I'm one of you, and we're going to be living in Goshen.
2: You know, it's interesting because when we get to Sefer Shemot, and it's going to retell in a few verses, this Parsha, where they come down to Egypt, and the line is Yosef Hayab and Mitzrayim, Joseph was in Egypt, and Rashi's famous comment is that he was Joseph in Egypt, at, I mean, in as a youth in Israel, and he was he remained Joseph in Egypt as well, which seems, in many ways, to be a complete rereading of the story in Brachit
1: by, by Rashi. Well, back to J- Jeremy when you when you talked about the, that introduction of the brothers, and we, we've gone a little bit ahead of the, the to the end of the Parsha. You know, the brothers defy Joseph, and they actually do say, "We are Son. We, you know, we're we're not going to be told what to tell." I mean, I I, I appreciate the brothers for their brashness and and forthrightness. And I think that part of what's going on here is is assertion of freedom and that the shepherd paradigm represents the free spirit. And the Egyptian paradigm is the state, that the, the state will control you. And in fact, you know, I would say that what we have in this Parsha is a kind of glimpse of the totalitarian state. I'm going to hold that idea for a second and go back. Because it's out of sync, out of out of step with, with where where this uh, happened, the 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 sequences of the story. There's one element there which is such a profound moment where, where we talked a little bit about last year Jacob meeting Pharaoh, and and I want to just go into if we could do that a little bit of uh, cinematography of that scene um, where where the two of them meet. It's um, uh, chapter forty-seven, verse uh, six-seven. Yosef and Yaakov Aviv. Joseph brings his father Jacob. Pharaoh. He stands him up before Pharaoh. Yaakov at Pharaoh. Jacob blesses Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh says to Joseph, "How old are you?" And Jacob says, "The days of my life are a hundred and thirty. They've been few and bad." My days—I didn't reach the days of my fathers uh, in their sojourns—and then Jacob blesses him, and he leaves Pharaoh. So, so can you unpack that for me? Can you kind of tell me what's going on here? Is it—it's not only that that he's being kind of melancholy. uh, just... Well, you unpack it. I want to. Okay, I'll unpack it. Go ahead. Take off the
2: proverbial hook. So I, I think that we we have to compare Jacob with Avraham. Avraham, at the end of his life, is described as dying, satisfied in his old age at 175. Jacob, who has 17 more years to live, realizes his life is not the life that he wanted. And I think that what weighs upon Joseph, uh, Jacob, as I said before, is... The idea of exile because already at 130 he knows that the rest of his life is not going to bring him any sipu gnefesh, any satisfaction which is astounding given the fact that he's just been reunited with his son joseph who we thought earlier was his most beloved son
0: right but well, he even says Amuta hapam, now i can die what are you like you're russian <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> well apparently um, and I, I think that this there's an important lesson here about perspective we get the sense of Abraham who had said also after the death of his wife Sarah that he was, God blessed him with everything that he had a way of picking himself and putting himself together in a way that eluded his grandson Jacob Jacob has really lived a troubled life and there have been great moments, but he's battered and bruised. And you asked for a cinematographer, cinematogra- whatever the word is, a film version of the story. So Jacob, I think, is bent over at 130. He's not standing straight. I imagine Pharaoh, because we're just imagining here, in his 50s. So he's kind of looking at this desiccated old man and wondering, what's your story, old man? And James, says, it's not a good story.
0: Leave uh-huh. me alone. Okay. I, I had a bat mitzvah kid a couple of years ago who, who re- wrestled with this one. How how many of the years of your life? She read it as Ooh, how old are you? <laughs> like, yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa. What, what are you like? A million? You are really old. And he's he's been battered by life, as as you said, you know. But it's funny, I mean, I find this. I find this dissonant in two ways. First of all, yeah, it's 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 true. He has been battered. He has maybe not had the life, but Abraham didn't have such an easy life either. And and Yitzhak, who lived an extra five years on Abraham, he also had some trauma. You know, we see Jacob when he's in when Jacob is in um, in, uh, in 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 Padan Aram. He's so like tough. He's so successful. He's so he makes he does the thing with the sheep and he outwits his father-in-law and he's got four wives and he's got lots of children. He's virile. He's, he's impressive guy. And maybe by the time then you have the whole Dina and Shechem episode and and the fact that Jacob does not choose a military or you know particularly macho kind of response, maybe, maybe that indicates that he's a diminished in the diminished state. but the man wrestled with the angel, and Sarita im Elohim and he's wrestled God and people and prevails. And now we're just like, uy, uy, what's what's the Achin VeBid? I don't get. I don't really. Let me. Know. I want
1: to. So, so I'm glad you went. You went Yiddish here because I when I look at this this scene, it's a totally. It's a. I, I imagine a Yiddish speaking person going, Okay, so you know, I, you know, I've had I've had my knocks in life. And then he looks at Pharaoh and says, you're, you're a Pharaoh. No, big deal. Big deal. You're a Pharaoh. <laughs> you know, I, that, I'm not impressed by that. And I get the sense that, you know, especially in that last verse where it says, which is Vayetbaret? yeah, okay, I give you a bracha and I leave. Which is, I'm not impressed by you. I, you don't impress me. Well, and, but I think another way to look at Jacob, he's like the old athlete. His
2: day is gone and he's living off his memories. And the memories don't console him. I have one more layer to this.
0: How can the memories, this is this is confusing to me. I mean, I don't have, I, I'm not disputing that the story does have that tone. I'm just astonished that it has that tone because the man just said, now I can die a happy man after everything that's happened, um, I laid eyes upon you again. And later on, when he really is about to die, he will say, you know, I never thought I was gonna see you again. And now, I'm, these are your children. It's ure Banim Levanecha Shalom HaYisroah. And I don't dispute that this passage with Pharaoh does come off as that very depressive, uh, you know, the wor- world weariness, But I just don't get how we went from now I can die a happy man to world weariness.
2: So I'm reminded of Psalm 49, which in short is you can't take it with you. And I I, I think that Jacob is in this position where he can't really integrate the pieces of his life. And that's why he says things like now I can die. And I think he's sincere and means it. But he's not going to die for another several years. And he's having a hard time holding himself together because his, you know, I I think the the central image is that we come back to the dislocation by the angel, not that he went, he limped into the city of Shechem Shalem. And that Shlemut, to borrow a phrase from my colleague Elliot, was destroyed by what his sons did in Shechem. And so we're left with Jacob literally and figuratively dislocated. He's no longer in his land. He's in someone else's land. He's no longer the top guy in any significant sense because his father works for, the, his son works for the top guy.
1: Well, I want to pick up on that because, because I, I want to, you know, I'm usually very critical about Jacob in this moment, but I, I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic here. He's had a hard life. And, and yeah, some of the echo of that early uh, extravagance and the early accomplishment, I I still sense there. It's not, we haven't gone to the bottom. He's been at the bottom already. But here he's coming as a father. He's meeting meeting his son's boss. He's meeting the boss of his son. And and there are two things that are happening here. One is, you're the Pharaoh, big deal. Right, you know, it's like it's like okay. So I wrestled with it with with an angel, you know. Sorry, and I, God spoke to me a few weeks ago. Sorry, uh, you know, you're no big deal. Okay, that's one. The second thing is, wait a minute. This is my son's boss. My son can't lift his finger, okay, without getting permission from this guy. This is not a good situation, right? And there's nothing I can do about it. And so this goes to the end of this parsha, which we kind of highlighted or touched on a second ago. Which is that what what is disturbing to I think all of us is that this doesn't end well for the people of Israel in Egypt. It doesn't end well for Egyptians. And Joseph is both heroic and also a little bit. He's there's something there's something to criticize about him because. He is the architect of the totalitarian state here and and this may not be a good good thing they that that he amasses so much control that um, and and as as Pharaoh's agent that nobody in Egypt can move without him. I don't know if you react to that that, that is Jacob I mean what I'm sensing maybe I'm putting too much in this moment is that Jacobs saying yeah, you're the Pharaoh and you know what? this is not all that is cracked up to be yeah you need to watch yourself Joseph but I can't say that I don't know maybe that's my servant
0: well I, I, I certainly think you're right about the analysis of what Joseph does in building in building power for the for the Empire here I mean he acquires all the land he acquires all the animals he turns everybody into serfs and uh, sharecroppers um, and lo and behold, that creates Egypt, Egypt as a very rich, very powerful totalitarian state. And by the way, that's going to come to bite his family in, in their rear ends. Well,
2: because I think it underscores for us that ultimately the Israelites themselves become Egyptians by becoming slaves. Joseph made all the native born Egyptian slaves and the next Pharaoh is going to come along and make all the Hebrew slaves as well. So that their exile experience ends disastrously. Yeah. There is yeah. no good in it. And it's not until God redeems them a few weeks from now that we can begin to reconstruct ourselves
1: as a people with a dream and a vision. And it's all it's all it's all in this parsha. It's all this I, I think the tension between Joseph and his brothers, the tension between Egypt and and the, the nascent. You know, community or people of Israel. That tension is there. Freedom and subservience. That's there. The the whole understanding of autonomy and uh, destiny. That's there also. This is this you is know, not a simple parsha.
0: <laughs> I, I would I would the way you said that makes me think that of the of the five books of the Chumash. Um, I think that Shmot ends on a big high note.
1: Yeah,
0: they, they build the tabernacle. God's presence fills it, and that's awesome. Um, How does this brishid, one
1: end? Breishit, go huh? ahead. How does Breshit end?
0: Breishit ends in exile, um, and we are right at the edge of slavery. And I think that this parasha points us to a very complicated end of Breshit. Vayikra ends with with mitzvot about. Um, I mean, it's something else in in the final chapter, but. It, it ends with mitzvot about agri, agricultural mitzvot for feeding the poor, because you're going to have a, a society of tremendous inequality. Bamidbar ends with the mitzvahs of Irmi Klat, because you're going to have murder in your land, and Deuteronomy and Didar, dies with, with Moses' death. So maybe each book ends on not a happy ending, but at least a complicated one.
1: Well, I would add to about the ending of this week because this will, this will segue into next week's Parsha and we, our time is coming to a close here. This book ends in a box. Joseph's in a box, right? And Joseph is, is you know, what, what could represent slavery and the, the lack of movement more than death and burial? He has nowhere to go and he's in a box. Go ahead.
2: But the box can also be seen as a suitcase because it's portable. And Moses is going to take that box with him. And just to add to what you said, Jeremy, Deuteronomy ends with the end of exile because the very next chapter of the Bible is going to begin the entrance into the land. land. And I think that's an important point as well, is that we end on these down notes. And in some ways, nothing could be more down than the death of Moses, the great prophet but the very next chapter is going to begin the entrance into the land. But I, but I would say that Judaism,
0: it is true that the Bible, the next chapter of the Bible is, is uh, Joshua chapter 1, and it is the Haftarah for Simchat Torah. But Judaism, as exemplified in the Torah reading cycle, pops us back to Breshi, which is also a story of exile, by the way. I put you in a garden, and then you are uh, exiled from it, and you have to spend your way your, the rest of your life trying to return to that paradise. Um, I just want to say one thing about a, 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 an important character in our parsha that we don't talk that much about, Sarah ha- Asher. Oh yes, she's in she's in the in the genealogy. We refer to uh, one of the daughters. Not there are some females in this genealogy. One of them is Sarah. She's also in the genealogy in the book of Bamidbar, and so she's like. There's a, The Midrashic tradition is that she's like the Sibylline oracle. She lives forever. And we know a few things. Like, there's nothing in the Torah about her, but um, but midrashically we have some lovely things that she is the one who informs Yaakov that Joseph is alive by, you know, because so, so who's going to tell him? If you tell him he's old, he's going to have a heart attack. So she tells him in a very gentle way. And she also is related to the story of Joseph because she's, she's been alive for the entire time of the Egyptian slavery, she knows where his bones are buried. She knows So Joseph's bones, Moses has to go back and get them to to fulfill his promise, to carry them back to bury them in Shechem. And nobody knows where they're buried. Sarah, Bat Asher knows
2: where they're buried. And as Hilary Mantel said, bring up the bones. But I, I, didn't read I just those want books. to add one thing in the great series. Go ahead. I want to add one thing, though, because your mention of Gan Eden reminds us that the other Gan that's described in Breshid is Sodom and Gomorrah described like the Garden of Egypt, that the Garden does lead to exile because ultimately
1: it's not where we want to be. Wow. Okay. Well, we have to bring this Parsha talk to a conclusion, It's not where we want to go we want to go with life is next week jacob lives and as complicated as these stories are it's such a joy to be able to talk about them we want to thank you for watching or listening and for sharing some of your time with us we enjoy sharing this time with you and thank you for all your comments keep them coming in on the facebook on the youtubes or wherever you Wherever you download or watch our, our, our you
0: watch our podcast. You download our podcast, and and for just nineteen ninety nine, we will come and uh, we will get.
1: We're going to exactly get directly to you. Okay. The mug and the t shirt. And We're so you know, glad. You should talk to your friend Rick Bial. Maybe we can have a. Yeah, can... no, look at that. <laughs> oh, look at that! Yeah, We can use it. Big shout out, okay, everyone. Shabbat, shalom. Shabbat shalom. Okay, See you next